Welcome back to Healing the Grumpy Athletes podcast. In this interview, I have Greg Day, sports physiotherapist from the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. He will have you challenge your mind when it comes to how you view movement and performance. Greg can be found traveling Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and Europe with his education courses through Prepare to Perform. With a true passion for knowledge and impacting every person's athletic journey, Greg's skill set has seen him work with China's women's volleyball team. He's worked with soldiers, sailors, and pilots across the British forces and Australian military, as well as your everyday gym goer, footballer, soccer player, swimmer, triathlete, or runner. He can now be found based on the Mornington Peninsula out of Virtus Human Performance, where he utilises the teachings of functional movement systems, which was founded by Gray Cook. It's known as FMS or SFMA. He integrates this into his practice as a sports physio while also conducting bike and body fits, allowing cyclists and triathletes to look at how their body and their bike can work better together. In today's chat, Greg uses his unique mind and love for analogies to explain what can be quite complex concepts in the world of biomechanics and functional movement. I certainly look forward to hearing about the impact that his wisdom has on your training, your movement preparation, injury rehab, but more importantly, that injury prevention space. You've done all the right things. You followed the program, but you're tired and the results are hard to come by. You know there has to be a better way. Perhaps you're struggling to put the puzzle pieces together from training, recovery, nutrition, gut health, to hormone health and optimal wellness. Each season on Healing Grumpy Athletes podcast, your host, Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance, will help put the puzzle pieces together and ensure you can achieve and express your athletic potential holistically. Katie is a self-confessed hormone nerd endurance coach, wellness advocate, and triathlete, here to educate, inspire, and distill wisdom in an effort to shift up endurance norms. Grab yourself an almond latte, a herbal tea, or perhaps a red wine to focus your mind and enjoy the show. All right, I have Greg Day in front of me, and I'm super excited to introduce you to him because I find that he is a very unique individual in regards to the way he practices uh, sports physio but also the way he educates and his passion for teaching and influencing athletes is quite pivotal. It's been pivotal for me and uh, my athletes, so I can't wait to introduce you to him. So thanks for coming, Greg. Thanks, Katie. Good to be here. I'm excited, mostly because uh, the purpose that we want to get into today is chatting about how athletes can get more invested in the mobility, pre-activation, and also... uh, post-workout protocols to excel their performance but also prevent injury and then also if an injury does happen getting invested in that rehab process and the difference that those one percenters that you talk about really make a difference Mm. Uh, so tell us about your perspective with athletes of perhaps why it's so hard to get that buy-in and consistency of the basics like a bit of rolling or mobility work the main reason is because people need to feel that what they do gives them a response, particularly in modern culture where we have a dopamine dump addiction of every ping that goes off, every email beep that goes off. That's just one example. But those people who are looking for performance gains consider predominantly about adaptation, tissue adaptation or energy system adaptation or metabolic adaptations, and adaptation traditionally is seen to be uh, what delivers the performance, and adaptation, as you know, takes remodeling of tissue, and that's a four- to six-week process, or even if you just tailor it out, a four-year process, you know, it's ongoing, but adaptation uh, is seen to be the thing which happens from training. You've got to put mileage in, and you've got to put intensity in, and you've got to put load-based stimulus is in in four different directions and four types of force use. However, 
adaptation is a bit like saying, I want to get to Sydney from Melbourne. And unless you see the initial response of the acceleration that you do today, you don't know whether that is taking you towards Sydney or whether it's taking you towards Adelaide. So we have this concept that says, before you see adaptation, you see a response. And a response happens instantaneously within a initial session. That means that what you do with pre-activation and mobility and movement preparation should allow you to see that your body has now responded to that. And that tells you that you're on the right trajectory to get the adaptation. So what it does require is for people to understand the criteria of what is a minimum acceptable movement. And so when you do movement preparation and that involves mobility work and motor control work, which is also known as activation, when you do that, the person should feel and know that they now are closer to a criteria than they were when they walked in the gym. So that takes something that we call attention and intention. You need to be paying attention to whether you meet the criteria of minimum levels of competency movement when you walk in the gym, and then you must have an intention to get closer to that minimum level of competency. And for people that don't necessarily know whether they meet that level of competency or that criteria, doing movement preparation or mobility or activation seems a little futile or boring because they just want to get the adaptation. And so it does take a requirement for people to know that they, they will always see a response before they see adaptation. Um, and that's, that's the gist of it. And it's not necessarily emotion inspiring for people to act on an emotion if they aren't attentive to what response they should be getting. Yeah, it's going to require a lot of mindfulness through those movements to assess whether there's been a change. Yeah. To get that dopamine hit of, oh, great, my hips feel better or my ankles better and I've got more push-off or whatever it is. But part of our ability to change that is to be more movement literate as coaches but not necessarily instill movement literacy for our clients. Here's an example. If my MacBook doesn't work, I take it to a, a MacBook engineer or a computer geek who can cause the MacBook to now work. I don't necessarily need to know how what he did and how he did it, but I do need him to move it in the direction that is more positive than what it was when I brought it in. My electric window on the car doesn't work. I don't need to know about circuitry, but I do need the electrical engineer to improve it and make the window go up and down. So our clients are looking for us to uh, see a response in the favour, and often they think they're not necessarily aware that that response should be day one in that session in movement prep you should walk out of movement prep being better and if you don't do movement prep and you don't get the awareness and the attention that that's what should have happened all you're thinking about is i actually just want to do the training and that's that's the fun part of training obviously but i think we need you just can't let people miss out on the possibility that you just took them a step closer to where they need to be Uh, if you don't do that you don't know whether all the hard work that you're putting in is taking you to Sydney or to Perth. Yeah, I think you just summarise, I guess, one of my greatest challenges as a coach is to get that buy-in from athletes so they don't know how the circuitry works, for example, but they want the performance progression. Yeah. Uh, so they've got to get this buy-in to what seems uh, futile exercises, but they do need to understand some of the mechanisms behind why. Uh, one of my main base exercises that I recommend to athletes is the rolling patterns uh, from your courses, uh, which we'll touch on later, but also the FMS model. Yep. So tell me about rolling patterns. Give us a bit of a brief overview and tell me what value they add to the picture. Okay, great question. You know, people want, they don't want the stake, they want the sizzle. And people don't want the tool, they want the hole that it drills. <laughs> so rolling... Love your analogy. Rolling is just not cool for people because it doesn't seem like what they actually want to do. But rolling actually has a sizzle and it creates a hole that you want. And what it does is it tells me as a clinician or you as a coach, it reveals to us the handbrake. And as long as we know that, we know whether you've gone off course to Sydney. So rolling is where you ask the body, ask the person to be laying on the back or the front and then transition from that to their front or their back. And we ask the person to initiate that movement by either the left upper limb or the right upper limb or the left lower limb or the right upper limb. And that tells us 
about the ability to control the trunk and the hip um, on one corner or the trunk and the shoulder on one corner whilst the other three corners stabilize the body. So it tells us about segmental control. It also tells us whether somebody is using their fundamental patterns in the out of order sequence. So we were born, the very first motor pattern that we ever developed was breathing. And if we didn't develop that pattern instantaneously, the doctor smacks you on the backside until you breathe. But the very second pattern after breathing happens to be gripping. And the one after that happens to be eyes open. And then we get eyes open and eyes tracking, which goes along with neck movement. And then that follows that you get these, you develop control of this flailing limb. And the main reason behind that is you need to, first of all, be secure with gripping, and then you need to see, um, you know, the, well, the motor control there is the yelling and then the eating. But after that, you need to see what it is that you're grabbing so there's not dangerous and see your food and then control that flailing limb and bring it to your food. These are all primitive survival animalistic instincts. So when we see somebody roll and we ask them to, and they don't use their eyes, they close their eyes and they leave their head behind and their limb goes in a completely different direction to where they should be aiming for. We know that at the base level, they've got a software system that's a little bit fried. And this happens in this dichotomy of training, which is you want to blast the nervous system to stimulate it, but you've also got to caress it. Caress it. it. I was going to use that word. <laughs> Jump in. You know, and the blast and the caress. So rolling for us reveals whether that person has been caressed back to a state of readiness to be blasted again. Because there's always this perception that physios really want to hold people back from training. Um, and there's that difficulty in physios don't shouldn't be giving people advice about training. We are here to caress the nervous system to bring you back so that you can blast it again. I've seen that with uh, your courses, but also taking athletes through rolling patterns. Like People get a little bit frustrated when we say first, get them to roll over and they discover that they can't and they, they jump into it. It's like, yeah, I can roll over. What are you talking about? Sure. This doesn't sound so hard. And then they discover that, oh, okay, this is actually challenging to yeah. do correctly. But as you just described, if we caress the nervous system and give them some cues of eye guidance and breathing, mm. bam, they move properly. Yeah. And I think it's important that just say, let's say I could jump out there and, and roll properly today. If I go do a high-intensity run tonight, that doesn't mean that I'll roll effectively tomorrow and that gives us information too, yeah? Yeah, it sets you up and says maybe tomorrow night before you run, and back up from tonight, maybe you should do a reset that allows your rolling to be improved so that it reveals to us that you're not dealing with fundamental problems. And let's just revisit one core concept. We're asking you to express mobility from one corner. But we're also saying, as a result of you attempting to do that, do you have to use one of the other three corners to help you? Because effectively, those other three corners should just provide a stable foundation for you to launch that one corner. And so if you see an opposite side um, of the arm or an opposite side of the leg, um, jumping around or moving or spiraling and rotating when it's not designed to you're simply asking one primary movement to occur and if you see other body parts moving instead that's saying to us you can't stabilize to express mobility you have to give up stability somewhere else to help you overcome a mobility problem or an expression of mobility that you don't have so it's more it's very revealing to us and more often than not, you see somebody's rolling pattern get better after you unlock a mobility restriction. So you don't have to work harder to get better at rolling. You usually just have to take the handbrake off. And that's a metaphor for performance. And we talk about this later, I'm sure, that the barriers to performance are not always about putting your foot down more. Sometimes they're just about taking the brakes off that are refraining you from going forward. And you've had experience with that, with power increases after mm -hmm. you adjust your bike, you know, so... Yeah. That's rolling. And look, the general rule about rolling is that it's a it's a neuromuscular control of the trunk with the upper limbs and the lower limbs. And it's it reveals the foundational movements for higher complex movements off the ground. So it's more about what it reveals. If we think about you know functional evaluations, they're not necessarily functional because of what they look like. They're functional because they reveal somebody's ability to respond and adapt to stimulus. And so rolling is functional because it reveals whether somebody has got minimum levels of neuromuscular control or not. Yeah, it's information and feedback. Yeah. And I remember when I first was introduced to this concept, I had a lot of light bulbs go off in relation to particularly swimming. Yeah. 
and the rolling patterns and the relationship to uh, trunk, upper body and lower body. And that has really helped me identify those handbrakes in a lot Mm. of my athletes that if they're getting pain in their thoracic neck or shoulder, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a shoulder problem. Yeah. And I know you've seen that before, and it can be from, a say, an ankle or a, a core issue. Yeah. And this is related to a, co- a concept called regional interdependence, which has been published about, and it says that a seemingly unrelated impairment somewhere in the body has an effect on another part of the body. Um, interestingly, swimming is a combination of rolling uh, because you're trying to roll, for example, let's say your left arm's coming over to enter the water and pull through. Um, typically what should happen is that you should have a nice stable base of the other three quarters of your body so that you can express that left arm. That's always enhanced by turning your head to the left, but that's not always what your head does because sometimes you stay face down in the water. So what by staying face down, that's creating a pattern that works against the left arm coming out of the water. So you have these mixed patterns. So often when we do a roll and we find that one quarter is no good, if you've got one fundamental pattern no good, you know that a complex pattern is always going to be worse because it's layering patterns on top of shitty ones and that's going to cause some problems. Which is an important point. Um, I know I have experienced this through getting treatment with you and athletes getting treatment with you. Often you'll uh, do a functional assessment or a bit of a treatment and we'll uncover a layer yeah. and release a mobility restriction or a motor control issue and, fit and correct it only to two, three days later, discover another issue and pain yeah. elsewhere that was potentially the root problem or the core of the onion. Yeah. So tell me how that works. Um, well, I think the endurance athletes particularly become extraordinarily good at uh, tolerating and compensating. Okay, We call them speed limpers. <laughs> It's not derogatory, it just means that you get off the bike and you are in a particular cycling pattern. Unfortunately, you then have to store energy and release it through the lower body, which doesn't happen on the bike, which is almost exclusively concentric. So you come off the the bike with a certain activation firing pattern that has to be instantaneously undone. So what you see is a sketchy run pattern initially, almost like a limp, a shuffle. And then, but you're trying to shuffle quickly, which is speed limping. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that don't shift out of that. It's not necessarily just a triathlete. It's your weekend warriors who, after long periods of sitting down, just don't quite regain minimum levels. And they head out for a run and they attempt to gain speed, but they effectively stay into a pattern which is just not optimal. And I never criticized that because I saw a guy in Taiwan who had a really bad running technique and instantaneously my head thinks about how he's not running very well and I thought maybe his goal today is to consume as many calories as possible in which case being super inefficient he's achieving that goal so you know you don't really know where Mm. I guess I had to be a little bit well done him for running so inefficiently that he would burn calories quicker than someone who was much more efficient than him yeah so we we uncover a layer only to recognize that sometimes that problem in the way that person moved was holding that person together. And if you take it away, you reveal that all these other body parts that were relying on that stiffness, unfortunately, they're not yet understanding of how to operate together until they're reprogrammed. So the layers is you take away a problem only to realize that that problem was holding you together. Yeah, and that circles back to the mobility activation and movement prep idea and and the rolling idea that that's integral to check in with yourself about where you're at for that particular day and have it as a routine before you go out and do even if it's just aerobic let alone interval based work to make sure you are being efficient and can express um, in the best possible way and then if you do have treatment from a physio or a, a clinician and it, it does uncover layers it's just information it's not necessarily something bad I know I used to get stuck in that yeah. negative feedback loop of oh my god I'm injured again oh my god the pain yeah. and obviously I would never progress with that yeah. feedback loop going on uh, so that yeah it's an important takeaway and I, and I think the rolling it's important to mention that movement prep doesn't finish on the floor movement prep mm-hmm. finishes through the quadruped or hands and knees position 
then transitions through the tall and half kneeling uh, movement patterns that we develop and then it goes to double leg stance and split stance and single leg and then eventually greater than body weight which is your, if it's a running term, your marching drills and skip drills and your lateral skips and your karaokas and it's about taking somebody through patterns that they have minimum levels of and expressing that patterns not just on the floor but through the crawling and then transition periods and they can all be done in a pre-training routine. It's just that sometimes when we end up with a list of exercises, they don't necessarily need to be done every day. That's just different opportunities to reveal where the next layer is. I think it's, that's really crucial, I think, because we as coaches with holistic endurance, we lay out a, a movement prep sequence to follow. But I would love if athletes can be intuitive with that, check in with themselves either via a rolling pattern or a bretzel, which I'll link to the videos of how people do those and what they look like. And then be intuitive with, okay, that's what's tired or restricted, therefore I'm going to um, channel my energy into releasing that and then get on with the session, rather than just going through a, a strict set of 10 exercises for the sake of it because yeah. someone said so. Well, I, I think if you go through a list, you've missed out on the attentive element and you, you with some, some degree of intention, you put your heart into movement prep until you have no idea what was supposed to be the outcome of movement prep and it feels a bit blasé, and then you've lost the ability to check whether you're getting the response. I could fall asleep or be uh, in a comatose state and still be driving somewhere. But you have to have the attention to say, I'm on the right path. For athletes, we do have to provide some level that says, you don't need these exercises anymore when you meet this level of competency. Like I remember you stating one day so succinctly, my program is no good to you in three days' time. <laughs> because you should have responded such that you need a new evaluation of what whether you're on track or not and we need to just retweak that a little bit so you, it's very difficult to write a program that is days long weeks long and months long because that's what google maps will print out for you but what if you get a flat tire or there's a roadblock mm. you've got to change direction and readjust so we have that if you're not paying attention you could just go on and on and on with movement prep and not be knowing what it's useful for. So that is up to us coaches to to use something called performance bandwidth, and perhaps we'll get a chance to talk about that. No, I wanted on. to get into that next. So you've um, used that term criteria a couple of times, and I know you've got a set of criteria, but it's come from a background. Mm. Tell us about that. Let's pretend you've never taken a course in movement evaluation or screening. Well, let's pretend that you've looked at movement evaluations and screening and you disagree with some of the criteria that's involved in it. Let's talk about the fact that that's actually nowhere near as important as what's called a performance bandwidth. Now, performance bandwidth says that for every movement, every movement, a population of people will move differently than another population of people. And we will say it's acceptable for that population to work that way and not necessarily acceptable for that population to work in this way. And I'll give you an example. In tennis um, and in baseball pitching, when you follow through and release the racket or you release the ball, the arm will cross over the body and the trunk will spin and rotate to decelerate across many joints. That is acceptable movement for a follow through. In volleyball, you can't do that because you strike the net and you lose the point. So instead of follow-throughing across the body, they follow through on the same side of the body, and that doesn't include trunk rotation. So that's acceptable for volleyball because it's specific for that person. So we have this, the first part of performance bandwidth is that there is a population specificity to certain movements. Okay, that's one part. The second part is that there is a task specificity, and I use the task and population in the same example with volleyball and tennis. But some tasks, you would say that it's acceptable at this level and it's not acceptable for another particular task. And then the last criteria says we have to have some type of uh, safety range. It's unsafe if you go, if you do a movement like so. As long as you stay inside the safe range, there's always going to be some variation. Now, the, what we really say there is we've said there's a performance difference, there's a, sorry, there's a population difference, there's a task difference, and there's a safety difference. And we have these reasons because we want to make something increased chance of success, uh, increased efficiency, and lower the risk of injury. Those three things are the reasons that we say that movement's not acceptable. 
For example, in the functional movement screen, we have a, a four-point scale, 0, 1, 2, 3. Effectively, you split that in two and you have a 0 and a 1. And a 0 and 1 says 0 is a painful movement and 1 is that the person can't complete the movement. Now, if I relate that back to performance bandwidth, a painful movement is increasing the risk of injury because that person is injured. Unable to complete the movement says that they're going to be completely inefficient and their chances of success with loaded movement is very, very low. So we have a scoring system that captures people who are outside the safety range and are very inefficient. And here's a really good example. When you play golf, they have a fairway. If the ball lands on the fairway, it's inside your bandwidth of acceptable. If it goes into the rough, you correct until it comes back onto the fairway. And the more advanced that people get in golf, the more they would like to channel that landing of the ball into specific parts of the fairway. And in basketball, it's completely lowering your chance of success if you attempt to dribble the ball out of court. You've got to be on the court. Where you are on the court is less important. Just be on the court. You know, so when we have movement evaluations like rolling, we can say, yes, there's lots of variation, but we have a criteria that says you're not on the court, you're off the fairway, and rolling's not unsafe, but it does reveal to us whether your body is going to be very inefficient or reduce your chance of success at stable, stable body parts and mobile body parts working together. So performance bandwidth says, I'm going to look at how you squat, and I need to understand whether that increases your chance of successfully getting that weight off the ground, whether it's, an whether it's an efficient movement and whether it's safe. And if it's, not, uh, if it's inefficient and I'm coaching you for a tissue adaptation, then I'm probably slowing you down and I'm not being as good a coach as I can. So if I can make that movement more efficient, you will all of a sudden lift more weight. And that's when you see the quick response. And that tells you you're on the right trajectory. So performance bandwidth is another phrase for criteria. And what we define as somebody who's outside of bandwidth is when we say that it's unsafe, it's, un it's inefficient, and it lowers the chance of success. And the more experience we get as coaches, the more we are able to make our own decisions that say, in the sport of triathlon, in my experience, that's inefficient, that will reduce your chance of success, and that will increase your risk of injury. And we have a lot of data across human populations that guides us in that, but inevitably, you take that guidance when you don't have experience, and you apply it. And later on, you'll come up with some experiences that refine that for you. It's about saying, just meet minimum, and after that, we can refine you. But if you're below minimum, gee, you're really going to struggle to get that tissue adaptation because your response, off. Yeah. your response is in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I think many triathletes, endurance athletes alike, would be quite surprised at how many would show up on a functional movement screen, FMS, uh, with uh, quite a lot of handbrakes that would put them below that minimum yeah. criteria. I think yeah. they'd be um, not happy about it. And I think... That's the challenge for people like yourselves and other um, clinicians is often you do have to hold athletes back mm. and be the bad guy and say, you don't have the functional capacity to, to run. Yeah. And that's their sport or yeah. swim, whatever it may be. And, and there are many people that can perform in a sport with um, movement competency that's outside the bandwidth. And, for example, LeBron James, I think his FMS score is nine, which means on a seven on seven different exercises, he's likely to have some zeros and ones, which indicates that he likely moves with some pain and some inability to complete some movements. But here's a guy who know what we call uh, functionally dysfunctional. It means he can operate with his problems and he can still score 40 points a game. But the idea is when a guy like him comes to me and says, I want some help from you, and you say, okay, do you, what do you want? I would like to be fitter and I would like to be stronger. And we look at the program and say, to, to be fitter and stronger, we're going to need to change some things in your program because what's currently your program has made you this strong and this fit. So we have to do something different to stimulate you. But before we do something differently, I should know whether some movements are unsafe and inefficient. 
Because if I load you up with those, I'm not necessarily going to take you forward. I might actually push you backwards. So we're really just saying, I don't know how well you move before I decide to change you. The same LeBron James might come to you and say, hey, I've got an FMS score of nine. Everyone says to me that that's horrible and I shouldn't do anything. I say, well, you're scoring 40 points a game. Don't do anything different. Mm. All right? Whatever you're doing, you've got your sweet spot. But if you want to change, we now know that you don't move so great even though you score 40 points a game, but you want to move with more load on top of a body that doesn't move so great, I'm going to say that's not necessarily the best recipe for you to stay in the game if you want to keep scoring 40 points. So we don't necessarily move use movement competency and relate it to necessarily performance. We use it to guide and tell us whether we're likely to still be in the game. Or if you've got a flat tire and a really empty tank and you're limping into town, you'll still achieve your goal. You just want to be as efficient hmm. as you'd like it to be. Yeah, it's that longevity conversation and it's, yes, you might stay in the sport for five, ten years, but how many of those months of those years are you out injured, frustrated, angry uh, and isolated because you can't train with your body? Yeah, and there's another way to think of it is you, if you have to work hard to perform a fundamental movement, that's what we call a preload. It means that you've gone into that movement already loaded up and that is the handbrake that we're talking about so a preload for an endurance athlete like a triathlete is like going into a race carrying an extra half kilo to one kilo you're preloaded and your tire pressure is below 90 psi um you are already having more rolling friction okay and you are already having rolling friction because your body weight is up so now, for you to achieve 35Ks an hour average speed on the bike, unfortunately, you've probably got to put 30% more effort in just to get to that speed, whereas that tire pressure being up and that half kilo not being on says that to achieve 35Ks now because you get less rolling friction and you're not so porky around the waist, so your frontal drag is a bit different, means that you could probably not have to put that 30% more effort in to raise your speed up by 10%. Which so this preload, yeah. yeah. Similar to the conversation around a bit of a tangent, but wellness foundations as well. It's those handbrakes can all not just be mobility or motor control, mm. can be sleep, stress, nutrition, and so forth. My next article coming out on otpbooks.com is about the role of mobility interventions in handling chronic stress. And it talks about how we have cortisol, which is a natural result of an acute stress. So one training effort that's a little bit heavier than what you normally do, your body says, gee, we're out of balance because we just blasted the nervous system. So it says, okay, I'm going to leap, release some cortisol. Cortisol is a hormone that brings you back into balance. It's very useful. And it also releases cytokines, which are about inflammation. Okay, so the body is suspecting because you blasted us, we're going to send our cytokines out and just check if there's anything that's a bit damaged. All right. But then, unfortunately, if you blast the nervous system again or you don't sleep or you've got a stress with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, unfortunately, you just down on some macronutrients and the body doesn't come back down to a balanced state quickly enough, you get a sustained cortisol. Interestingly enough, cortisol can be really useful in performance the day after an acute stress, but a sustained portion of cortisol is not so cool. So one of the things that we know about reducing cortisol and the effects on it is that when you have a positive outlook on health, your cortisol can go down. One of the great ways to get a positive outlook on health is to walk into your training session knowing that you're not quite meeting some criteria and then do an attentive, attentive intentional movement prep that within minutes sees you moving better. And Tell now you think, dopamine. wow, I've just got this positive outlook on my likelihood of moving well today. And cortisol drops down when you're in a social circumstance when you have non-threatening movement, then your experience that movement and training is beating you up suddenly just got one session less. Mm. So your experience got balanced in the other direction. So there's a real role for non-threatening, attentive, intentional movement towards a criteria of minimum competency towards bringing your stress levels down. And that's where us as coaches should be running a performance bandwidth on all that all the training that we do with people. Are you currently am I currently operating you so that you'll lower efficiency, increase risk of injury, 
and on a low chance of success. Because if I do that, then you're not going to see a response. And unfortunately, you won't see a response means that you will not have a positive outlook on your current training and what it's doing to you. And that also give you sustained cortisol. And we know sustained cortisol affects sleep and every triathlete in the world hates being told by their coach, you need to get more sleep. And you mm-hmm. think, how do I get more sleep when I've got three um, three sports that I've got to be training and programming for and a full-time job and kids? Yeah. And you say, if you will pay attention to the simple things. They are simple. They're so simple. They are. It's environment. It's lifestyle. They're, they're right at people's grasps. One of the guys that yeah. I worked with who's Mark Verstegen, the founder of Exos, he just said to me, if... We get people to do simple things done savagely well. We will see the results. Savage. (laughs) Savagely well. Do simple things savagely well and you'll get results. So, uh, you know, that cortisol, the sleep, the role of mobility is related to having this performance bandwidth that says, I don't move so great today, I'm going to do a mobility intervention or a movement prep and I should see that I move better. And if I don't move better, that's the wrong drill for me today. And maybe that drill is trying to be doing something that it just doesn't have the power to do. And maybe I do need a reset. I need somebody to use their hand to change how I move because this exercise is not doing it. And that's where I think feedback from the athlete is so integral. Of course. And that's where the mindfulness aspect comes in so that they actually notice with intent about how they feel, what moves and what changes and what doesn't work. And then from that feedback... Uh, clinicians and coaches can create change yeah and this performance bandwidth is supposed to be as objective as possible because the best way to know that you're objective is to recognize that you're not so an athlete can't be objective because they're using an athlete's head they're trying to be also a coach's head and they're also trying to be their own physio head or chiro (laughs) head or osteo head because they're trying to look after their body and it's completely difficult to be objective so it's up to us to say, hey, you're not going so great. By the way, I need to check the simple things again. And I'm not going to gloss over them because you're sick of me asking them. I need to be objected to say, you have dipped. Okay, so let's bring that back up. And in fact, no, you haven't dipped. So now I know that that's not the problem. And then we where start... Where to next? Where to next? That's an objective checklist. And that can be difficult for a lot of people because it doesn't seem as exciting as... Mm-hmm. Subjective. Oh, gee, we need to do our glute meat activation because that's something that I know how to do with it and I can switch my mind off doing it. And I think what is key is creating the relationship between those exercises, those fundamentals and the excitement or the euphoria of racing pain-free, achieving a goal and feeling excellent from a optimal performance. It's it's linking those one percenters and, and tiny steps, sleep improvement, nutrition, mobility, and treatment uh, into that end result. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a, ra- a race. It can be a, a, a positive experience in a training session. And w- as athletes, I, I, you know, I'm one, so I can own this. We are good at tending to the negative and we note pain or dysfunction quite easily in, in feedback. But I think there's, like you discussed, with that response and, and buy-in, that if we, as athletes, can pay attention to things that are neutral as well as positive, uh, not just the negative of the pain, what did you notice that was just there, effortlessly there? Yeah. Uh, traps were relaxed, core was breathing, diaphragm was relaxed, whatever it may be. So it wasn't necessarily that it was something ecstatically good or ecstatically bad, but noticing the the neutrality has value as well. Absolutely. And you mentioned a good word that was excitement and, and also result. Think of this. I'm going to give you a little tidbit into life that's not very well known. This happens whether people know it or not. Okay. It's called the TEAR principle, T-E-A-R. Okay. It means that every thought that you have will lead you to an emotion. And every emotion will lead to an action and every action will lead to a result. And every result that you have then may, forces you to think about whether that result is what you want. So you're back to the T again. And then that thought again, it causes you to feel good about the last result or bad Mm -hmm. or indifferent. And as a result of that, you will then act in one direction. You will do nothing different, in which case you'll get the same result as the last cycle, or you'll act in a different direction. But every emotion fits into three categories, good, bad, or indifferent. Most people that have an indifferent emotion, therefore the absence of excitement, they will continue to act in the same way that gives them the same result. 
And so for a triathlete to not be mindful in movement preparation means that you probably won't get anything out of it. But it's hard to be exciting about movement preparation unless you tie that action to a favorable result. And that's the response that we want. Every single day, people are bypassing the thought and the emotion, and they're just doing an action and a result and not paying attention to what result is from that action. So the T-E-A-R principle happens every single day whether people know it or not. For example, your result of being a triathlon coach comes on the back of taking action to go through a university degree and follow this pathway, which came on the back of having emotions which were in the good category that led you to act in that way. But that all started from thinking about what it is that you wanted to do. So even though you maybe didn't think that that was a forward plan, you're in this circumstances for the same TEAR as am I with my profession. And as is the person who goes down to the milk bar, their result is to get milk. They took action by driving because they had an emotion that said, I want milk. Or they thought in the fridge, we don't have any and I'm going to be in trouble if... So I have a negative emotion mm-hmm. if we don't have some. This goes on all the time and how we factor it into training is to make sure people are excited or at least they have a good reason to take an action and then point them to the result from that action. Unfortunately, not everyone moves towards a goal. A lot of people move away from a goal. Or they zigzag. Or they zigzag. And I guess it's up to us to understand that if we feel that somebody is take is being a triathlete or an endurance coach because the alternative for them is worse, then that person's acting away from something they don't want, which is just as equally viable. Or another person says, I've got the most fantastic life and family, but I want to be a triathlete simply because I love the rush. And so they will act based on good emotions. And it's up to us to tap into what direction they're going so that we can still facilitate the right response based on that action. So that's the TEAR principle. And sometimes we understand that we've got to bypass the thought and just tap straight into the action. And that's based on how the person turns up today. Mm-hmm. There's a great book by Chip and Dan Heath called Switch about directing change where it says sometimes you've got to direct the rider. of it. The analogy is the rider on an elephant in a path in the jungle. If the path is overgrown, the elephant will either push through it or go on a different path of least resistance. If there's food up ahead, the elephant will, will do whatever it wants, irrespective of what the rider up top wants. The rider is the brain, the person who's thinking, the one who's planning. The elephant is the emotion, taking the actions, and the result is getting somewhere. As coaches, we can shape the path, we can motivate the elephant, or we can direct the rider. Many people, many athletes, if we just direct the rider, we don't get the action. Sometimes we've got to tap into the emotional elephant within them and get them to charge. And other times, we need to turn that elephant around, which means we've got to shape the path. And in movement prep, what we do is we shape the path and we explain to the rider that this path will get them the result that they need. Sometimes we've got to help that elephant get there as well. That's the emotional side, uh, and that's the balance. So it's generally there's a lot of science behind what appears to be mundane activities for a lot of people. It just means having a good relationship with a good coach who pays attention to you every single time you see them. Or a clinician that can work in together as a team. And yep. I know you do that well to communicate back to an athlete or an athlete's coach. So... T- for the clinicians out there, all the athletes that are struggling to integrate that team and get the communication, what advice do you have? Uh, I don't know whether I should say it, but I'm going to. I moved away from private practice and into a performance facility. Mm. Not everyone can do that. All right? I get that. I have a lot, a lot of the coaches that I have worked with feel disappointed that they don't get correspondence from clinicians. I've got to tell you, if you don't reply and connect to the coaches, you're not being as good as the, you could be. And unfortunately, people will go elsewhere. I work in a performance facility so that the coaches can come upstairs and I go downstairs, vice versa, and we all... Constant feedback. We constant feedback. We have to get that response based on the action we took Hmm. to get this outcome. And I know that doesn't work for everybody, and I know that every exercise facility and training coach can't bring a clinician on board, and every clinician can't have a large facility to operate training in and that's not always their in their intended population but tell you what it makes everyone's job a hell of a lot easier if you've got that now if you don't when a clinician and a coach 
attempt to correspond with each other, just bloody do it. Mm. I mean, you can't mess about. This person has is coughing up money to be cared for, and if you don't connect with each other, it's a proper disservice, unfortunately. I yeah. So I've had holistic endurance coaching for five years, and before that, a personal trainer as and strength coach. Just in the coaching space, I reckon I've had two physios, not including yourself, reach out and give me feedback yeah. in that time of hundreds of coached athletes. Yeah. Uh, that is the handbrake of our profession. <clears throat> Going to weekend courses, upskilling, chatting to each other over conferences and doing courses and reading book, or instantaneously feeding back to the coach who's training that person and saying, is the response that I gave that person in the clinic assisting them to exercise better? And then it's the the athlete taking ownership to report back with feedback as well and not say, I right, this comes up for me quite often. They might just be a bit flippant or like, I don't know, I don't remember, or yeah, I was fine, yep. but really they weren't. Absolutely, because everything that a client says to you about the person they've just come from will be diluted hmm. and it will be mostly or sometimes misunderstood. Yeah. I never judge the person that they've just come from in any negative light because I understand that's very possible they gave extraordinarily sound Mm -hmm. advice, fantastic um, exercise planning, and the person walked out of there for all sorts of reasons, a bit blasted and unable to really articulate the same way. Mm. And unfortunately, that means that what you've left is with Chinese whispers. And that's why it's so important that coaches and clinicians ring each other and send emails with each other and say, to be very clear, this is what we got to. But if this person is a little bit blasted, they're likely to forget. So I really need you to, to do that in the very next session. And work together. And mm-hmm. one of the advantages of having a network and some of the courses that I do is I know which coaches understand when I say, hey, by the way, that rolling was really bad on the upper quarter on the right from belly to back. And the coach says, I actually understand everything that you just said. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. As a, a coach, even though I'm not a full-time strength coach in the gym anymore, I still go and do those professional development courses even though it's not my day-to-day profession because I can interpret what you're reporting back to me as an FMS instructor and clinician uh, in a much more tangible way to go, right, I know what that means and how I need to respond as a coach to adjust their program. It makes life so much easier, uh, which is why I'm getting Coach Jackie who works for Holistic Endurance to come attend your course and I, you know, endurance coaches, even if you're not planning on uh, taking athletes in a gym to do functional movement screening, the course FMS, which we'll link you to, will still add a lot of value to be able to discuss and disseminate the information from clinicians. Absolutely. I mean, the, the great medical professionals, and we can replace that word medical with strength and conditioning, mm-hmm. uh, performance coaching, physical preparation coaches, the great ones do three things well. They communicate well, they get the diagnosis right first time every time, and they have great exercise and treatment knowledge. But it all starts with having a diagnosis because you could be terrible at communication, but if you get the diagnosis right and your treatment or your exercise or your planning and programming is good, then being a bad communicator can be tolerated. Mm-hmm. If you're an excellent communicator but your diagnosis is completely wrong, and I say diagnosis in so much as you evaluate an athlete before you program them and you determine that that person has got a an adequate level of movement competency and hormonal balances and metabolic <laughs> demand and you program them and you got it wrong at the start, it doesn't matter how good your program is or how good a communicator you are. So we run these courses to bring everybody, first of all, to communicate with each other, each other using the same language. Secondly, to be on the same page with what the diagnosis is, and I say that term diagnosis in so much as we all understand that somebody moves to a minimum level or they don't. And the last one is then you get to apply your fantastic artistic and scientific practice of being a coach or clinician, but we're always going to judge you back on that original evaluation that we all agreed upon. Mm. And that's the benefit of having a network of people because I absolutely want to be held accountable by the coach who works with me and say, hey, this is what I found, and that's different from what you found. I go, hey, first of all, I don't want to be wrong, but if I am wrong, I'll own it. And secondly, I say, I'm absolutely sure I wasn't wrong, which means today that person's better or worse. Because now we've got some consistency across exactly the same evaluation processes, and we can say, isn't that amazing? You are so much better today than you were yesterday when I evaluated you. That means we just got a response. We're on the right trajectory.
or you know you've deteriorated since one day ago can we have a bit of a chat about what's been happening and the person tells you they woke at 3am with a distress mm. with a with a horrible bout of the runs and all of a sudden their entire right quarter abdomen is a bit locked up and they don't quite move well on that side so that's the main reason that we connect with coaches i need to be held accountable to a standard objective operating procedure and i want the coaches to have awareness of that so that we take our person forward because our end result is that that person is better because of us working with them and the only way to know the better is to know where they started from yeah and i find at times that uh you might as the clinician get a different story to what i might get as the coach because athletes don't like necessarily to be held back or have load reduced or uh, be told they need to adjust original plan there's a lot of emotional attachment to that so it's common i found that i get a bit of filtered information but physio gets told the uh, real story of how much pain they're in so I think that helps break, break down that potential barrier as well as we can get the real story at times <laughs> yeah that's the nature of human behavior yeah yeah now you've got a uh, great analogy for robust function yeah the pillars of performance mm. and I really want to take people through that before we wrap up because I think that that's integral to understand the progression of of movement and mobility. Okay, 2012, the National Strength and Conditioning Association of the USA held an entire conference on functional training because it was a real buzz that everybody was having a functional training space and we're doing functional training. And nowhere on that agenda, on the list, on the court, on the conference agenda, was let's define the word function. So nobody had any agreement about what it meant. So back in 2012, we had a real good think about it. And we said, we came up with that there needs to be something in there about the ability to adapt. If you're functional, you need to have the ability to adapt. Right? But adapt, adaptations about like tissue growth and metabolic changes. But it was leaving out one element, which is that you should have the ability to respond. And so we came up with that function is the ability to adapt, to respond, and then adapt to internal and external stimuli. So therefore... Functional training is not about what it looks like for that person. It's about whether the training improves that person's ability to respond or adapt to internal and external stimuli. Or a functional evaluation, be it a screen, assessment, or test, which are three types of your evaluation. A functional evaluation was not called functional because of what it looked like. It's called functional because it revealed to you whether the person could respond and adapt to the stimulus being asked of them or thrown at them. Hmm. A functional so, movement exercise can only be called functional if it creates function. Absolutely. Hmm. Interestingly, I looked up the word robust because that was being thrown up a lot in those ensuing years. And robust in the Oxford Dictionary says the ability to withstand or overcome adverse conditions. So I think the progression here is that robust and function are almost exactly the same, except robust adds a layer of capacity. So you, function is about, let's, we're going to throw some internal and external stimuli at you, and then we want you to be responsive and adapting to that stimuli, but over and over and over again. And that's, so robust and function are super similar. But interestingly, what stops somebody from being robust and functional fits into four categories? And they relate to forces, forces of nature. And another way to explain forces is energy. And you say, well, sometimes if you can't define what drives performance, can you define what stops performance? Well, you need to be pain-free because pain can be inhibitory or facilitatory. It can make some muscles tighter and it can make other muscles not work. So let's call pain-free good energy. And therefore, the barrier to robust function is the opposite of that, which is bad energy. But bad energy could also include cancer, toxins, inflammation, poisons, mental distress, so hormonal, all these, imbalance. hormonal imbalance, all sorts of mm. ill health. This is the domain of the medical world. Mm. Let's get you to a minimum level of healthy or having of good energy so that your body can deal with the adverse conditions and external stimuli. That's barrier one, is bad energy. The next one is blocked energy. 
think of this as a mobility restriction, all right? Um, if you had a vehicle, think of a blocked energy as a joint that was unable to spin because of high friction and not enough oil, all right? So you lubricate it, you mobilize it. Now the delivery of force goes through that joint cleanly or to a minimum level. So the opposite of blocked energy is unblocked energy, and that says, do you have the minimum levels of mobility to function robustly? In cycling, for example, in a time trial position, or even if you're just up on the hoods, you should have 120 degrees of hip flexion um, so that your thigh can go to the up te uh, to top dead center of the cycling revolution. And not being able to get 120 degrees of hip flexion means that you'll have to come up with that range of motion somewhere else. And that typically looks like the pelvis hitching. Yeah, the rocking on the saddle. The rocking yeah. on the saddle, and that creates friction and drag. So we have minimum levels for cycling. In track sprinting, your your initial starting takeoff position should be about 130 degrees, so it's a little bit more. So we know certain population-specific bandwidths, mm -hmm. and not having it says you're dealing with blocked energy. So a person not running a 10-second 100 metres is not necessarily because they didn't do enough deadlifts or squats. It may just be that they didn't have the 130 degrees at the start. So when they pushed off, they had to come up with extra range somewhere else. That slows them down. And in the first 10 meters, you probably should hit 62% of your top speed. So if you slow down on your first step because you can't get into the position, you're probably not gonna run a 10 second. Sometimes it's about unblocking energy to allow you to see that performance. The third one is, if you've got all this flowing energy because it's not blocked, you've got to be able to control it. That's called motor control. And we have criteria about what is acceptable motor control and rolling reveals that to us. The last barrier to robust function is deficient energy. You don't hurt, you've got minimum mobility, you've got good motor control, you're actually just not fit. Mm. You're not strong, you're not in condition, you don't have a work capacity. So the bad energy is the demand of our health professionals the blocked and unblocked and controlled energy is the domain of our medical professionals, allied health professionals and coaches. In fact, anybody who's involved in training people. Movement. Mm. Movement. And then the deficient energy is really the result of the physical preparation coaches slash strength and conditioning coaches slash programming coaches supported by their allied health staff. Uh, who may be able to initiate some programming with capacity uh, or provide a bit of guidance. Coming so, back to the importance of a team again. Exactly. Yeah. So our four barriers are bad energy, blocked energy, leaked energy, deficient energy. Um, and that is really about health function, performance, mobility, motor control, capacity. And there's always a deficit in some coaches' minds that the physio is not taking me forward or the athlete's mind that I'm not getting enough work in. We absolutely need you to have capacity. But it's very likely that your end outcome won't be enhanced by more capacity. It's very likely that it'll be enhanced by controlling the energy that you've got, unblocking the energy that you mm. don't have and taking away all that bad energy. And your hormones and cortisol is deep in that. And there is a pecking order. Get rid of the bad first, unblock it control it and then put your foot down on the gas pedal. Mm. I see that just in a reduction of either volume or intensity or both and for athletes that are say overtrained or, or burnt out they're able to then after recovery and working with a team and correcting a bunch of stuff they can then express their potential or an athlete might be ticking most of those boxes but let's say their load goes up by uh, X percent the following week, but they don't match that with extra sleep, extra recovery, and extra nutrition. One of those pillars is going to fall down. Absolutely, and then think if we're going to change volume and intensity and bring it down, let's call that. Let's have a performance bandwidth that says we don't bring it down too far. Well, the performance bandwidth, the elephant in the room is, don't bring your training stress balance below eighty percent. Uh, don't bring your modified training sessions down below 80%. That means if you have a planned program for six months to do a six and a half minute, six and a half hour half Ironman, all right, and you miss 20% of that planned program, the chances of you completing that six and a half hour half Ironman have significantly dropped out. 
So if we have to modify your training, it's our responsibility to say, I can't bring you back any further if you're going to meet that goal. Mm. Or you need to have one or two weeks of low intensity and low volume for reasons related to bad energy and blocked energy. And then you follow the training load monitoring and you see that suddenly our training stress balance is at 80%. Any lower than that and we're now going to lose fitness. Mm. Right now you're on the point of you are fresh as a daisy, but you probably haven't lost much chronic training load fitness. But if we let you drop below 80% on your training stress balance, we're going to see you suffer the effects of the reduced volume that we threw at you. And that's not helping you perform better. Yeah, I'll link uh, listeners to an article that explains uh, training stress balance and chronic training load for those that don't use it, how to measure it and the value of it. That's certainly how I coach and it it's one piece of information. It is a number. Mm. Uh, you know, athlete feedback and how they feel is also part of that picture. I don't sure. think we can completely rely on the numbers. Now, you've also got a performance bandwidth process that you use for a bike fit that I think is quite unique and I'd love to talk about. So you, you go through a process that takes about three hours and you're broken into three parts. Mm-hmm. First part is let's look at whether the bike is measurably correct for your body structure. We quickly check leg length and we know that based on your leg length plus the cleats that you wear, the thickness of the cleats, we can determine whether your saddle height and down the seat tube to the crank and the pedal is about right. And we know that biomechanically perfect cyclists should have a ratio of about 98%, which means that from the top of the seat to the bottom of the pedal, that distance should be approximately 98% of the length of your leg right. from the side of your thigh bone down to the bottom of your fifth metatarsal. Anyway, that's one little metric we've got there. We have a few others that are generally based on some bike fit parameters. Since biking, bike geometry changes a little bit, there's a little bit of a range, and so we say it doesn't need to be perfect, but it's definitely got to be within this range. Mm. People that are less biomechanically perfect, we have to lower the seat or bring it forward a little, all sorts of things like that. That doesn't always take a great deal of time, but sometimes it'll take up to about an hour. The other thing we do is we just put a simple spirit level and say, are these handlebars resting sideways? What sort of angle and inclination? What's the seat post doing? Is it even vertical? And you've got experience about that. I have to laugh, yeah. That was a pivotal day for me. Greg found a discrepancy, let's say, in my bike frame that had not been picked up by mechanics or other bike fits in the past. And I'd been riding a, call it a crooked bike for however many years with lots of pelvic issues, knee issues, etc. We don't know how much or many of those issues were from that crooked bike, but uh, it's been amazing since. One, we corrected uh, as much as we could on that old bike and immediately I had 20 more watts riding mm. and then I got a new bike. You had 20 more watts average over a 90-minute ride. Mm. Okay, so that's what we call a short-term response. But, uh, imagine yeah. my dopamine was flying that day. Of course it was, yeah. <laughs> I was on a massive high. Anyway, then we found a new bike to race Bustleton Half Ironman on and got an, an additional 20 above that on a bike that actually worked for me. Yeah that wasn't crooked so the initial bike fit is bike fit is let's let me look at some minimums you're either on the fairway and on the basketball court or you're not and we need to bring you back onto it um we tend to have a pretty narrow fairway the second part is well your bike looks great i need to see whether you move to minimum levels that's called the body fit and then the third part is you've got bad energy blocked energy leaked energy and your coach can talk to you about whether you're deficient energy or not. But I need to show you some correctives that indicate we can shift that bad energy, blocked energy, leaked energy, so that your body fit works so much easier on a bike which is now inside minimum levels of bandwidth. And what we typically see is a person gets onto the bike and suddenly more fluidly circulates the pedals in a difficult time trial position or on the drop with nowhere near as much pelvic hitching, Mm. shoulder switching left and right, with a a heel that drops a little lower, and if it drops lower, we know that we can get a slightly better pull on the upstroke. Mm. 
And we see changes in power, not because of an extra capacity, but because of a removal of these barriers to performance. So the bike fit and body fit combo is check the bike, check the body, and then correct the body. And we allow for three hours to do that and get it all done that way. So, And as a physio consultation, because I'm really assessing you as a person mm. and your equipment, you know, we rebate it because it's a rebateable service is physical therapy. Yeah, I'll be linking everyone to that, that's for sure. And for those that aren't local to Victoria or the peninsula, I've had plenty of athletes fly in um, or travel mm. because it is well worth it. And we've had some... Uh, some expressions of interest, uh, we were just briefly talking about some of the courses that's coming on later this year. Yes. But I will go to New Zealand at least three times this year, potentially a fourth, plus we're planning Townsville, Brisbane, Sydney and Perth for our coursework. And that does present the opportunity for planning in advance to say, hey, let's get a bike fit, body fit done somewhere. At the same time. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about those courses for those that are clinicians, strength coaches, personal trainers or endurance coaches. So far we've got three or four courses planned in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I believe it's four related to clinical um, certification courses in functional movement assessment. Okay. And that's Perth, Auckland, Brisbane and Sydney. Okay, we have level one and two for that, that course. It's called the SFMA, Selective Functional Movement Assessment. So I also teach that in China um, and Taiwan. Then the other courses are for coaches, clinicians, and trainers who aren't necessarily certified in how to determine whether somebody has performance bandwidth movement assessment. Mm-hmm but who would like an insight to what that really means and how can we program mobility and motor control to take our people forward. And what we're really addressing there are those two middle barriers to robust function. It's not necessarily bad energy. It's the blocked energy and leaked energy that we're addressing, which is the mobility and stability and motor control for performance. So that course is coming up. We've got Dunedin, Townsville, Brisbane. Mm. Um, that'll also go to China and Taiwan this year and Poland as well. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, I attended myself and got heaps out of it from a personal athletic perspective, but also uh, as a coach, it was immensely valuable. So tell us where uh, people can find you and reach out to you online. Simple website, prepare to perform.net. Okay, and everything you need to know will be on there. A whole bunch of video drills, links to courses, links to articles that I have written and published. Um, and I do have a professional Facebook page, which is Greg Day, Sports Physiotherapist, which is where I post a lot of videos and training over many different years. So uh, those are the main two ones. Yeah, you post uh, your weekly good stuff. Weekly which good I love. stuff, yeah. Yeah, everyone should keep an eye out for that. There's lots of wisdom in those Mm. quotes and obviously lots of analogies, which you've heard today. (laughs) Thanks for your time, Greg. I have no doubt we will come back to another conversation and dive even deeper into sports physio, movement, prep, athletic function and more. So I'd love uh, listeners' feedback, questions, and I'll get Greg back on and we'll... uh, We'll chat more. My pleasure being here. Thank you. And good luck, people, in your training. Thanks.